0: This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, rostering and timesheets without the usual chaos.
1: I guess if you're going to be competitive in this environment, you need to make sure that you've got enough juice in the tank, uh, obviously financially, but also emotionally uh, and physically to see it through because it's a hard game, you know, There's there's no easy service
0: This is The Luminaries, on the Deep in the Weeds podcast, I'm Anthony Huckstead. Australia's coffee culture is considered one of the most mature on the planet, triggered by waves of coffee-loving migrants, and allowed to blossom and evolve in groundbreaking cafes as one of our most important means of social interaction. There have been some that have carved a path and set a benchmark to ensure cafes and coffee remain an integral part of our lives. Salvatore Malatesta is the owner of St Ali in Melbourne. Salvatore, how are you?
1: I'm amazing, 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 amazing. And thank you so much for having me
0: on your amazing show. Well, you're you're known and St Ali is known as really the beating heart of coffee in Melbourne. How, How does it feel to be talked about in that way?
1: It comes with, um, thank you, that's very kind, kind words. Uh, It does come with a sense of enormous responsibility, to be honest, Um, and there is a lot of anxiety around being judged uh, continuously. So um, as I've got older, I'm almost 50, I probably, uh, you know, don't quite care as much in terms of reading every review. I sort of feel comfortable in our own skin and uh, and I remember watching Prince, um, you know, in his concert where he started a few songs and then he said, "I've got so many hits, I'm not sure where to start." Um, and I guess when you get old, when you get older, you think, "Well, we've been around almost twenty fucking years, so um, you know, if you don't like what we do, well, you know, fuck off." But um, that's not entirely true. You still have a little bit of anxiety because. I mean you in, in hospital and retail you're only as good as last week, right? So um there's always a cooler dog, a bigger dog, a faster dog, and uh remaining relevant's been our thing. But I think where I um you know and I've done a I've done a fair bit of therapy as well, mate. So I, I've um you know, I've reached this point through lots of work, but I think uh I find, you know, and I'm not a name and shamer, but there are a few people that literally cut and paste what we do um, and and present it as their own. We've got one in particular who literally cuts and pastes like it's pure plagiarism. Um, and whilst some people say flattery is the uh, greatest form of comp, uh, whatever the expression is, your greatest form of flattery or something, um, it's a it's a little bit annoying. But I think we like to think of ourselves as innovating continuously. And so hopefully if we innovate fast enough, um, it's harder to catch us. So how does it feel? It feels – and the other thing, I guess, that I've thought a lot about is I don't feel like Sonali belongs to us anymore, to be honest. I think I think it's a bit like the SP in that it belongs to Melbourne. Um, and and I, if there was a way to donate it to Melbourne, you know, on my passing, I would, um, uh, uh, you know, because unfortunately cafes need people to run them so you can't just donate the – the cafes, but, um, but like, you know, we, we've, we over the years, um, we've been the uh, poster boys poster boys and girls for, you know, Tourism Australia, Tourism Victoria. Um, we, we, we toured with the last big day out with Ken West and we were the official coffee makers for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We toured with them, you know, nationally. The stuff, you know, we've done some really cool stuff over 18 or so years. Um, yeah, it feels great. I mean, that was a long answer, wasn't it? Sorry about
0: that. <laughs> well, we like long answers on on podcasts. Um, well, take us back. There's so many stories that I'd love to touch on, but take us back to where it all started. Like, where did you? Where did the interest in coffee start for you?
1: So you know, um, coffee is a, and people often forget this is a drug of dependence, right? So um, it's not if you if you're a coffee drinker and you give it up you feel nauseous and get headaches. So it's something that once you're on, you're on, right? Um, and, but also it's a cultural voice, and that's something else people forget about as well. So, you know, if a lot of people, particularly in Australia, understand coffee as espresso, you know, from a La Marzocco coffee machine, but if you're from, you know, Copenhagen, it's always been about filter, Batch brew, and if you're from Tokyo, it's been about you know cold drip or siphon, and if you're in Italy, it's been about stovetop and so forth. So, so culturally, um, coffee has a massive impact and influence in the uh, landscape. And f- for me, I mean, from my name should be a giveaway, but we're uh, we're Italian migrants. So, um, given that I have tried, I've given it an attempt at explaining that um, coffee is. Um, very much uh, culturally dependent, or um, it makes sense that for me, with my Italian background, coffee was going to be very much part of my life forever. And as cliche as this sounds, it's true. Italian toddlers are given coffee in milk, yeah. maybe a teaspoon or half a teaspoon. It's all sort of part of the tea ceremony or coffee ceremony in this case um and so for me that smell and i don't know if you've experienced this with anything before but whenever i have a particular single state single origin micro lot or particular blend of coffee it's transporting so it has a uh, very powerful psychedelic transporting so for me you know coffee was so much part of my every day that it was only inevitable that it would become of interest now when i got involved in Hospo. I went through, you know, some formal training. Some good restaurants. I went to William Angliss College, Hotel Management and Catering, um, before I did a law degree. Um, and so I was always going to be in hospo. I, I think, um, at one point when I was seventeen or eighteen, I'd thought about I probably want to be a concierge at a, you know, at a uh, interesting hotel where I could um, have some fun with interesting guests. And then, you know, coffee coffee got a hold. And I opened my first cafe when I was uh, 19 years old or 20 years old, and just on 20, um So I was, I was studying arts law at M- University of Melbourne. And I was majoring in philosophy in my arts degree. And consequently had a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands. And we um, I got a lot of help from a lot of friends. And I opened a cafe on campus back then called Caffeine. And, um, you know, there was a a few things that we did, which were in hindsight, probably ludicrous, but at the time, perfectly sensible. So we had, you know, we had techniques and vinyl at lunchtime, um, at a university cafe, right? So I went very much, very quickly. We went from, I went from living in Park Street, Brunswick in a share house with seven people, um, working on a casual hourly rate to owning this really busy cafe and, um, and coffee was the anchor for the offering and it opened my eyes as to perhaps hospitality could be more than just a passion it could also provide provide um you know career option and 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 some other opportunities and that's what happened and not in a million years would i've thought that's necessarily where my trajectory would have been but that's i mean it has has a
0: strong hold right coffee take us back to that time with that cafe Cafes have changed so much since then. What's it been like being part of the evolution of the cafe culture here?
1: You know that I always um, there's always a reference to the you know the golden era golden era of porn, um, and uh, you're wondering where I'm going with this. But it's I uh, think I think I was in the golden era of hospital, You know, a um, sort of Anthony Bourdain hospitality, which I realise now with some enlightenment. And um, self-work that that hospitality burnt people out and um, was it came with a lot of demons and um, came with a lot of issues. You know the long shifts, double shifts, that kind of hospo. Uh, and you know we probably should never go back there again. But that's the hospitality that I was I was brought up in. And so I remember, um, you know, my first or second shift as a as a, a section waiter in a restaurant that I'll keep confidential for the moment, um, the head chef. The head chef was um, pretty keen on terrorising everybody and ran that kitchen in the way that you might think old brigades used to work. Um, but that was the hospitality that I knew and that was the one that I was brought up in. And, and whilst it was tough and it wasn't for everyone and there were plenty of um, you know, dead bodies along the way, uh, metaphorically, uh, it was one that we all understood and loved. Um, And I think hospitality has changed from that. And back then it was sort of chef or restaurateur uh, driven. So there was always the restaurateur and the chef. And then it became less about the restaurateur and became about the chef. And then it became about the chef and groups. Then it became about the chef groups and banks. And then it became, you know, larger groups and sort of Excel, Excel sheet plays, if you know. And... That's not the restaurants that any of us actually listening want to go to. Uh, I mean, we want to go to the restaurants that are the chef-driven or restaurateur driven and cares in the detail, but it's just become a bit more like the Vegas model in that large groups own lots of restaurants. And and, and there's very few that can pull that off and make them good. Now, we're lucky enough to have a couple in Melbourne that do, um, and doing a great job, but that's sort of the hospitality as I remember. And then, um, what we have now. So, so then I drilled down into coffee specifically. So, so it's, whilst it's hospitality, um, I mean, what our main business is is sourcing, roasting, and supplying, you know, excellent coffee beans. So we can do that uh, uh, without running a restaurant, and um, and we can do that. You know, there are not. There are not no limits, but there are sort of no limits as to who you can sell to and how far you can go and so forth. So it's a different
0: different business, I guess, to the one I started and got involved in. Let's go back to that time and and what you were like back then. Um what were some of the sort of challenges and adversities that sort of um and failures that you had and lessons but you you grew from it? Ah. Uh, there
1: were plenty of failures and plenty of lessons. I mean, look, I think the biggest, I had two gifts, I think, when I started out. Um, one was poverty, so uh, there wasn't much to lose. So it didn't, didn't really matter what happened really, you know. And, uh, and the other one was uh, inexperience and self-confidence. So I thought I could do it, right? Like I remember um, winning that tender at Melbourne Uni and I had $18,000 saved. Um, and I thought that was enough to open a cafe. Um, it clearly wasn't. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I juggled and moved things around and, you know, begged and sort of that kind of stuff the you were, for me, it was exciting to learn on the go and just go for it. And the good thing about being young and doing it, and you know, to anyone who's thinking about opening a business, the best time to do it is, is as soon as you can, because you don't actually have anything to lose. Right. Once you've, uh, jumped on the um, uh, trajectory and you've got kids and dependents and stuff, well, then you're sort of compromising other people. But when you're 19 and 20, I mean, I was living in a share house with seven people, so the worst thing that could happen was I was living in a share house with seven people, (laughs) you know. That was going to be the worst, So and the worst was pretty good. So it wasn't that bad. So I I know that uh, um, if I had my time again, would I do anything differently? Look, probably not, because I probably wouldn't have done it if someone had told me the business plan and the Excel spreadsheet and what I needed to do to break even. I would have said, "Oh, I'm not going to do that. That's like that's that's a silly idea." Um, so, because I didn't have time to think about it, we just did it, and then, and we got lucky, you know. And one of the things I've always said in lots of interviews is that. Um, the reason for the success in the early days was that I was always the end user of the product. So I kind of understood the market, um, you know, back in the day, I don't know if you went to uni in Victoria, but um, and back then and maybe still now, or maybe even more so now, Melbourne Uni was considered you know, best in category for a lot of things. And the offering on campus in terms of food and beverage was, you know, fried dim sims and 600ml bottles of Coke. And um, you know, I remember every day we used to walk off campus and go and eat at Tiamo's or whatever um, because, you know, we didn't want to dip sim in a bottle of Coke every day. Um, and so it wasn't difficult for me to conceptualise and know that a cafe on campus was probably going to be successful because, you know, a hundred of us would walk off from my faculty every day to go and buy coffee and stuff off campus, right? And and, and back and, and back then um, when I, you know, I remember approaching my brother saying, kind of borrow some money. Uh, I've got this idea. I want to open a cafe on campus. The standard position back then was that's the most ludicrous idea ever. Students don't have any money. Who are you going to sell food to? And I said, students always have money for drugs and parties, and they always have money for coffee and festivals. They don't have money for rent and food, um, you know. And that was the approach that I took, and, and it was kind of right, you know, like – um people would always part with money for good coffee and we were always, you know, more expensive than everybody else. I remember, you know, we opened at La Trobe Uni uh, one year and, um, and I think coffee was a dollar 70 or something before we opened in in the student cafe and we were $3.50, which was considered, you know, like $8 today or something, you know. Um, And um, we had, you know, queues all day long and people would, students would thank us for being open like rather than rather than resent the 350 they'd be like thank you so much for this this is awesome you know and so it was like we were always pioneering and 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 reaching out the lands that people didn't believe in and um for a while there some of my uh now peers used to enjoy in in making jokes at my expense about being the university king until until they realized universities were uh, a great place to be in. And by that stage, I'd done 15 venues in university. So I was quite happy. Not to mention, by the way, not to mention that, um, I don't know if you, like I said, what uni you went to, but it's a, it's a hotbed for political thought and enthusiasm, right, or well, was then anyway. So you're around people who are love, love, challenging, love experimenting, like what an environment. And once you're back in the day at Melbourne Uni, once you're on campus, it, it was like being on the moon. Like it didn't matter what happened outside. It was like this sort of gated community of, you know, committed academics. So it was good fun.
0: Tell us about the beginnings of Saint Ali and um, and and how you pulled it together.
1: Yeah, there's lots of stories about this. Um, so I think we should uh, I think we should uh, uh, um, put a nice uh, circle of truth around it. I mean, the truth is. Um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, um, and often, often, uh, people run with s- some strange conspiracy theories and there is, the truth is, um, back in the day, uh, a couple of guys got together and, um, and none of those guys was me. And one of those guys was Coffee Supreme and one of them was Mark Dundon about opening this micro roastery in South Melbourne and Supreme pulled out. Um, and then Mark went balls deep on his own. And I remember it was like third week or something of him being opened. And um, a friend of mine who owns a business called uh, Soul Fresh, his name is DD, and now he's a CEO of Soul Fresh, but was back then um, a one-man sort of business. He rang me up and he said, "Do you got to check out this cafe. Um, it's unbelievable. It's in a garage in a laneway. And I was like and I, I I was I think I was about thirty six and I was kind of um I don't want to say semi retired but I'd sold some things and having a break and I remember walking in thinking and by the way, Sunali didn't look like it looks now, like it was literally a bench and a five reneg- kilo really renegade wrap. But I remember thinking, This guy's insane, but this place is cool. Um and it's really cool. And I don't even know why it's cool, but it just feels cool. And I remember thinking the name was cool, and the and the name came about through, um, you know, Sanai being the patron saint of coffee uh, after uh, uh, the goat herder who discovered the coffee bean, Muhammad Sabir ibn Ali. And I thought, this is what a fucking story. This is this is this is pants. And so I, you know, worked out who Mark was and tapped him on the shoulder, and we had a couple of chats. The first two, he told me to fuck myself. Um, and um, then about a year later, um, you know, I did the did the do and, and then took Sonali from there to the world. And I, I think Mark and I have since, you know, had a few makeup dinners and, um, and I still think it's probably one of his um, regrets, to be honest. Uh, even though he's gone and do some pretty cool things, uh, it was in my mind and remains um, the pioneer of that space in Australia.
0: Tell us about the evolution of St. Ali once you got your hands on it. Um, Are there some really key moments that you can tell us about?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so St. Ali was about 13 months old when when, we, you know, when I got my hands on it. And at that point, um, you know, what I know now, we used to roast on a five kilo renegade roaster, which um, if there are any renegade fans out there, um, then you need to get your head examined. Um, it was um, it was like using a terrible toaster. So you know, we quickly moved to a Probat, um, and you know, Probat's probably the benchmark for um, you know uh, good roasting. But more so, you know, we were sort of old school, 1958, 1962, old school barrel Probat roasters, um, and and in this process, you know, when, when you when you do a roast. You know, roasts can vary between, I don't know, 12 minutes and 18 minutes or something. So if you do the numbers on that, you probably get three batches an hour and and you lose about 20% of uh, weight to roast ratio. Um, and so if you've got a five kilo roaster and you're getting 15 kilos an hour and you're losing 20%, you're getting 13 kilos an hour. And anyone listening who knows um, some busy cafes can use that in a day, right? So it's sort of dawned upon me that, um, micro roasting, uh, as an idea was good, but what we were doing, what I would inherited, uh, was something more like toasting, uh, some two slices of bread, um, rather than micro roasting. Like it was a tiny outfit, right. And so, but it took me at least five or six mistakes to realize I needed to, um, spend resources on the bits that mattered like, um, green sourcing, uh, and, uh, rather than hand packing, you know, and so that journey, um, uh, and and I didn't. And by the way, it took me a while to work that out. Uh, so you know, while I was trying to understand why the commerce of roasting coffee didn't make any sense, like it was more expensive to roast bean coffee than it was to just buy coffee, um, I went on this sort of evangelical tirade. Uh, I was so frustrated by the price points that coffee was at um, when it was like you know eight dollars for a beer and it was like three dollars for a coffee and coffee took so much effort to make taste good uh, and put in a cup and then i realized that um when you started digging deeper and deeper into the coffee story and the coffee narrative as it turns out the work that we were doing was actually probably even the least significant because the most significant work was happening at farm level and that we were merely custodians of the farmers. So. You've got, you know, 100 pairs of hands picking cherries and sorting them out at a farm level and then another 100 pairs of hands in between getting the coffee from A to B and all the people moving the coffee around were making the money. The guy people growing the money, growing the coffee, weren't making any money. Um, And the people selling at the other end were doing okay, but the brokers in between were making the most and they were um, not doing anything really. And I thought, well, it can't be that hard. So we, you know, sort of started going to farms and nobody goes to farms. But back then, the idea of direct direct trade was, um, you know, pretty new. And to be honest, I was so ill-prepared for going to farms that I didn't even think it through. I remember my first farm visit, I rocked up and um, I was kind of wearing a suit. I don't know why I was wearing a suit. I think I was wearing a suit because... Um, it's the best way to carry one, you know, because I only do c- carry-on luggage. So if you're going to bring a suit overseas, you sort of wear it on the plane or something. And I got picked up at the airport. And the next thing, next thing I was on a donkey on a on a mountain uh, in a suit, uh, in, you know, Costa Rica or Honduras or something. I can't remember. And one advantage that I had was I spoke Spanish. So... Um, it didn't take me long to work out that the you know there was a farm gate price, there was a broker price, and I just started dealing directly. And we said to them back then, and the same farms we still use today, you know, like, like this is a flavour profile we're looking for, and if you know have a, if you invest a little bit of money into a fermentation tank, and if you do this and if you do that, in fact, we'll just buy them for you because. It wasn't very expensive to us, but it was expensive to them, like a donkey's, I don't know, $500 or something, you know. But $500 to us wasn't a lot of money. Um, and then we started getting high-quality coffee, and we could afford to pay two or three times the commodity price because the commodity price was so low, and we were getting great coffees, right? So I guess what I'm saying, to, to to get on a plane and go to Origin at a time when going to Origin was not common, Now, now that it's sort of set up a like a circus as, you know, tour companies but back back then it was um, you know you bump into one or two people that you knew from around the globe that was kind of in hindsight pretty cool stuff at the time I I was just like can't be that hard right like how hard can it be you just go there and you knock on some doors and that's exactly what we did you know and in that process you met some interesting characters you met some, you know, people in the cartels. They were interesting. There were lots of guns everywhere. Lots of lots. I remember lots and lots of guns. So there was, you know, three or four or five guns in cars, two or three guns in, you know, at the hotel. Um, and um, that was a journey. And I, I mean, how can you not love that? I remember eating pork belly that was cooked in a forty-gallon drum, um, uh, and tequila shots in in, in Honduras. Um, I mean, they're memorable times. And when you're on a when you're on a farm, and I think when you eat, eat coffee cherries off a tree, which you know if you haven't done, you should do. And um, you know you spit out the pip, which is the coffee beans, and then you realise it's a fruit. You know you have that. You know you sort of always knew it was a fruit, but you didn't really think about it being a fruit. And then you think, hang on a sec. Of course, it's going to taste different if it's grown in Kenya or Costa Rica or, or whatever. And that sort of moment where you realise the coffee plant, given a voice, has enormous power, that could only happen through that journey, right? Now that's what I'm saying. A lot of these days, a few of the plagiarists that come up and, and cut and paste and pretend to be an indie coffee micro roasting business, give me the shits because they're just pretending. They even haven't been to a farm, even if they have good coffee. Um, you know, some of them are smart enough to buy at least good coffee, but they really sort of haven't done the the journey. And our journey back then was or mine in particular, was counterculture. Um, you know, I was very vocal about the big corporate companies, uh, very um, vocal that, you know, a few threatened to sue me and shut me down that kind of stuff. And I, I wasn't, you know, having had a legal background in training, I was not at all concerned because everything I wasn't saying wasn't defamatory, it was honest and truthful. So I was like, well, yeah, go ahead and prove me wrong. And that's what I did. And at one point at one year, I, um, I think BuzzFeed, uh, named me number one as the most pretentious thing ever out of their 24 most pretentious things. So, so I
0: think I did some good work. This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, helping managers and staff do their best work. Building a business is hard. I feel it as I build my business, but I can tell you one thing that every single day, I feel very blessed for the impact our business Deputy has in this hospitality community and the numerous stories that we have been part of. Stories where I've heard Deputy customers who have opened new restaurants because of the cost savings they have had by implementing Deputy in their business. Being able to open new restaurant, creating new employment, new opportunities and new connections. For more information, go to deputy.com. You mentioned um, that coffee for you is transporting. Um, Tell us about the coffee experience from your perspective and um, what you're trying to deliver for your customers. So, um, as I said, uh, I've got cultural
1: sensitivities to coffee. Um, So, you know, I don't drink Turkish coffee, but I understand it and I understand why people drink it. And there are people doing great work in that space, but often it's, um, you know, Uh, dark roast Robusta coffees, so it's, you know, not my profile. But as an example, I just say that. Um, And so um, for a lot of my, um, you know, Italo friends, um, the work that we do for our um, uh, fruit bombs or our, you know, fruit forward or fruit focused coffees, even though they may be coffees that we think are delicious and and they're super expensive and super rare, they're like, that taste like shit. I don't want my coffee to taste like pineapple juice or lemon juice or, you know, papaya. I want my coffee to taste like coffee. And I'd be like, well, what does that mean to you? You know, what does a coffee taste like coffee mean, you know? Um, and the traditional Italo roast, Italian roast, which is, you know, Brazil, Colombia, most common coffees in the world, probably least interesting, I guess, um, uh, you know, and you're trying to get a profile, which is caramel chocolates. So you're trying to celebrate sweetness without any of the bitterness. Well, if you, if you follow that orthodox, and we have a blend called orthodox, if you follow that orthodox sort of blend, but you start with um, higher-grade coffees and you take the roasting slightly back so it's not quite as dark uh, or not quite as developed, uh, and there's an argument here about how you like your toast, you know, on a chart of one to six, are you sort of warm bread or are you like burnt, you know. Um, and especially, especially coffee was always, you know, sort of medium to light. Um, and, and you know, a lot of the Americans, we have at the moment um, Dwayne Soroson, who is a founder of Stumptown Coffee, working for us in the US. And his view is that a lot of Australian coffees are underdeveloped, which is a polite way of saying roast too lightly. So, uh, what i, I guess the long way of saying we've got enough in our stable to tick a lot of boxes we've got a a crowd play, which is orthodox which is you know you can't hate you know like if you're a snob and a coffee purist you might think is um slightly predictable in flavor profile but you're not going to hate it um and then we've got um you know at the other end in disco blend, which is um, what I just, just described, a traditional Italian coffee made for people who are searching for those caramels and chocolates and want to cut through milk. And then all the way down to our single origin, single state program where, you know, we just released a geisha last week and, you know, like I said, the flavor was, was full of fruit. And so um, even when it comes to mouthful with coffee, if you think about it, if you're an espresso drinker, uh, and of that ilk, um, you're wanting mouthful and you're talking, you know, you're talking crammer and mouthful. But um, if you're a in-the-cup profile guy and you're drinking siphons or pour-overs or batches or whatever, you're looking for flavour and so you're looking for a more tea-like consistency. So even in even in mouthful, um, it's a very different thing. And, and, and rather than being – and so I guess what, what Sonali's always done and what I've always done because I had this – Cultural sensitivity, and I know in the early days, even a couple of the characters that I mentioned earlier were, you know, pretty anti what the Italians were doing. I was like, well, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. It's it, it, it's it's um a journey, and it's and it's culturally relevant. So we we can't say this is wrong and this is right. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean um, when it comes to something a bit more obvious like wine. I am probably considered a pretentious wine drinker rather than a pointy end wine drinker. And, and I'll tell you what I mean. So I've, um, you know, experimented with naturals when it comes to wine, the oranges and, you know, one in 10 are unbelievable and nine in 10 are just crap. And, um, I just can't be bothered with having a crap wine experience. So I'll, you know, um, And this is lazy because, you know, to navigate the crap from the good requires a lot of work, so I'll tend to order a Chablis or Pinot Noir and I know where I'm ordering it from and I'm pretty guaranteed to have the flavour, you know, explosion in my mouth that I want. Now, if I'm in the hands of a capable Somme, and you mentioned Chess Ho uh, earlier, so if it's Jess or Urumu and they're going to recommend a natural for me, sure, I'll, you know, I'll run with uh, some recommendation. But um, – and that's the same with coffee. If you want your coffee every morning as a, you know, kickstarter and as a um, moment of reflection and mindfulness, you don't necessarily want a fruit bomb journey. Like You just want a coffee that's going to taste delicious and get you going. But if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon you've got a bit of time and, you know, you're a foodie and you're sitting at a bar at our new slow bar at St. L. A., and you've got our, you know, cellar project. So we've got, you know, over 100 coffees frozen um, dating back a few years from different harvests and you want to, you know, traipse through the cellar menu and choose a coffee and pay 25 bucks for it and wait 15 minutes for it. Um, mm-hmm. Great, you know. Um, but they're very different experiences, right? And um, I guess that's that's my journey with everything. Like at home, we only eat well, you know, I always say, I don't want bad calories, you know, like I just don't want them, I mean, I'm too old to have calories, I'm too old to have bad calories, so, whatever we are going to eat, it's going to be good, and if I want to eat crap, and sometimes I do, you know, I mean, proper junk, you know, Um, then I'm celebrating the junk, and, uh, and I'm washing it down, with a good old Coke, you know, which might happen once a year, or twice a year, Um, but that's the experience, that I want then, so, no judgment from us. And that's one of the things that I think, unfortunately, people think we are pretty judgy and pretty clicky and pretty hipster. But the truth is we're not. Um, it's your journey. And often when I'm selling someone a piece of brewing equipment, you know, my first question is, do you, do you have a budget? Because if you don't have a budget, well, we can go anywhere. Um, and if you've got a budget, then, you know, a good mock master for 400 bucks, you know, plug and play on the bench. Um, it's going to give you pretty much everything you need. Um, you know, if you, um, you know, start your journey there, and everyone starts their journey in coffee, actually, probably most, most people, in milk. Um, so they're not really drinking coffee anyway. They're drinking like a coffee-flavoured milk product. Um, and, you know, early in their journey, they're adding sugar. So, you know, I watched my own children. Uh, my daughter's turned 19, and she always used to drink a cappuccino latte with one sugar. And now she's already at long max stages. And, you know, by the time she's 22, she'll be only blacks. And then she'll, you know, be sight. you know what I mean? So um, you know, everyone who works for me who's been around for long enough, no one drinks milk. And um, I'm like, well, that's a problem, don't you see that, given that 90% of people still drink milk um, and we need to be tasty coffee as to how they drink it. Um, and, you know, what's added to the complication is all the alternate milks these days. So, um, you know... This, this might taste great with soy but not oat and not good with almond but not walnut and so on and so on. So it's quite complicated, mate. Long, long,
0: long answer for you. Well, uh, St. Ali's is one of the best cafes on the planet. Well, lots of people think that starting a cafe is a good idea for them. Well, what would you say to those thinking about getting into the business? Um,
1: well, you know, it's been very kind to me, hospital and cafes, and I love it. It's... Uh, um, I think, before I answer that question in relation to cafes, I just think business full stop. I think you, if you could do a personality profile test, you know, what I mean is if you can look in the mirror and you think, am I a high risk or low risk individual? Because if you're low risk or even medium risk, then I say, don't do anything because you'll stay up at time and get stomach ulcers. If you're a high-risk individual, then I'd say, yep, it's a good start because, you know, hospitals pretty high risk. Um, yeah, a lot of them go under. Not many of them, you know, and not, not many of them survive. Not many of them survive more than three years. There's been a lot of food and beverage venues that I think of over the last 20 years that are no longer with us. You know, very few reach, you know, iconic, classic, you know, decade status and and even fewer 20 years beyond, right? So, I mean, 20 years is our benchmark. That's what we're going for. We're two years out. So, um, uh, and I guess um, you got to, so it's once you've done that assessment, you've got to, if you're going to get into the cafes, you have to love people. Because, you know, um, yeah. one of the sort of trends that happened with hipster coffee bars is that the barista never spoke to customers um and then bruce was so focused focused on the craft that you know he didn't need to talk to customers he was just focused on the craft and and that's sort of you know we were we suffered a bit of that in the early days but that's not the venue that i want to be in you know um i don't necessarily want the customer the waiter or bruce to be my best friend but i, I the human exchange and the uh, is you know and the warmth and the hospitable exchange is something that i would want in my um, barista or server or, or whatever. Um, so if you don't love people, um, I wouldn't get into cafes. And then I guess um, uh, unless you've got a large inheritance or um, are keen to halve your wealth, um, I, I would I would be um, you know treating it like I would be doing the numbers before you do anything. And then in that advice, I'd say the biggest killer for operators. Um, is occupancy costs. And in occupancy costs, I include, obviously, rent, but um, the additional uh, occupancy costs these days, which are no longer a rounding error. But when I started out, you know, no one actually thought about electricity or gas. They were like, they came monthly, but they were like, I don't know, $500 or something. And now they're like $5,000 or something. So it's like $1,000 a week. In you know you know induced to run the cafe right so those that's the biggest number that you can't change once you've locked in those numbers um, if they're too high it's pretty hard to turn tricks unless you get lucky and you're really busy um, and you know I like there are some rentals being paid out there by some of these large groups I think well you need to you need to do ten thousand people a week because if you don't it goes backwards pretty quickly um, and then. I don't know, I think um, if you're a young person starting out, you need to accept that for the first year or three of your life, it's pretty much all you're going to do. Um, and, you know, it's strange, right, because when, when, let's talk about sport for a minute. When someone's a, um Olympian or a, you know, marathon winner, um, I can't remember the names of the guy that broke two, 2 hours for the marathon remember the guy's name i don't remember it. anyway when you're that guy if you if all you do is train and eat to train to train to eat to train to eat and that's all you do that's like respected right and it's like there's tears at podiums is kind of like um, you know there's lots of sort of adoration and but if you do the same in business you're psycho and you don't know the difference in work life balance Right. Um, but if you wanna be um Melbourne's best restaurateur or yeah, Melbourne's best barman or Melbourne's best chef, you're gonna do nothing but that. And you're gonna do that until you are. I mean, you don't become Rene Renzeppi or my favourite in Australia at the moment, Josh Nyland. I hope he's listening because that guy I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a groupie, but cheese is bloody good. Um I don't know if you follow his work, but that fish butchery stuff, unbelievable. Like, it's one of the reasons I want to move to Sydney. Um, You know, it's all he does, right? He eats, swallows, studies fish, um, you know, and he works all the time. So I guess if you're going to be competitive in this environment, you need to make sure that you've got enough juice in the tank, uh, obviously financially, but also emotionally uh, and physically to see it through because it's a hard game, you know. There's no... There's
0: no easy service. The pandemic meant that reinvention was required for everyone in the food service sector. What did you do?
1: I feel like you just ignored my advice here. It was not the advice you wanted. Um, (laughs) Hang on. Yeah, it's great. Everyone should open a cafe. Is that better? um, uh, What did did I do? So, yeah, look, um, my pivot story... Uh, you know, I've told it so many times I bore myself, so I'll try and get some enthusiasm, but I got pretty lucky with my pivot and truthfully, if not for this, it would have been a very different pandemic for us. I was in Koh Samui probably on my, you know, third drink when my um, best friend who owns a um, a Legendaire's uh, uh, disease prevention company called Hydrochem... Um, And what does that mean? He puts chemicals into cooling towers to make sure that legionnaires doesn't spread. So he's an industrial chemist. And he rang me and said, hey, you got this. It was January 3rd last year. And he said, I've got this really strange phone call to tell you about. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, oh, I just had a phone call. One of our clients wants 25,000 litres of hand sanitizer." And to be honest with you, man, I didn't really even know what hand sanitizer was. I was just like, all right. And I was sort of, why? You know, and the only time that I'd sort of used hand sanitizer was in hospitals when they sort of tell me to sanitize for a walk-in to see the patient, you know, that kind of thing. And probably not even thought about what I was what I was doing, you know. I was like, okay, I've got to spray this and walk in. Okay, gotcha, yep, there it is. And I said, um, you know, who's the client? he said it was, well, it was Crown Casino and... Um, I thought, okay, no worries. Um, What do you want from me? He said, well, I need, you know, I move bulk product around. I need someone to, you know, do it with so we can make it into sort of a retail product. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, we've got a creative team and it's pretty simple, I suspect. You know, what are the ingredients? And these are the ingredients, all that kind of stuff. And so we got onto designing um, this beautiful bottle. Um, Be calm, be kind, be clean was the bottle. And, um, And then I was flying back through Singapore and I was in Singapore. And everyone was wearing a mask. And remembering, if you can remember back then, I, I I never wore a mask in my life. I didn't wouldn't even know what it was really. You know, I was like, why is he even wearing a mask? And then when I landed in Melbourne, I thought to myself, I reckon Chairman Packer has spoken to Chairman Mao. And this whole bloody Wuhan thing's for real, you know. So I rang Nick and I said, "Hey, um, you know, how much ethanol do you buy a month?" And he said, "We buy this much." I said, "Well, can, you should buy 25 times as much," and because I reckon this whole thing's going to blow up. And we had a little you know, discussion about it, and we decided it was worth a punt, and and we did it. And then for about four weeks, maybe a little bit longer, maybe five weeks. We had 96 of our staff working seven days, three shifts, making sanitizer, and we ended up selling sanitizer to the Royal Flying Doctors, to the Army, to Victoria Police, to anyone. And no one had it, and we had it. And um, I had people, you know, had you know close friends begging to come by and pick up a bottle at home and that kind of thing. And everybody was in this weird panic, and we were just working. I was working 90 hours a week. I was I couldn't panic because I was just working all the time. I was just trying to fill orders that by the time we'd filled all the orders, the panic was over, if you know what I mean. And I was just like, all right, what's this Corona thing all about? You know, that kind of thing. And um, but in that process, mate, what happened was because so many people uh, came to our website, uh, at one point on our website, there were two and a half thousand visitors, um, which is phenomenal. And we grew our database. And so then I figured, well, we had the goods. People trusted the brand enough to buy sanitizer from us. Why don't we just sell other stuff? And we started selling other stuff of people that we liked. Um, actually, Jess Ho helped out a lot in the beginning. She hooked us up with a whole bunch of, uh, um, you know, cool little chef artists and makers like City Larder. And we started selling cool products like that. And then sort of overnight, it seems, but maybe not overnight, over a period of about six months, we became an online sort of pantry. And we went from moving a 1,000 boxes a month online to 12,000 boxes of stuff online. And, and every time we hit a hurdle, um, so, you know, the most embarrassing hurdle was we. I watched my coffee go from Port Melbourne to Clayton to Redfern to Newcastle back down to St Kilda delivered to a customer. Uh, and I, you can see the tracking thing and I was just like, this is so fucked. Um, and then I thought we've got 15 trucks anyway. From why don't we just put the trucks on the road and deliver our own stuff? So I put the trucks on the road, and you know we got all our all our baristas and stuff just delivering. And then um, we and we made this promise that we would deliver anywhere, including Mildura and you know anywhere in Victoria. So we did, and we grew the business. So you know, um, come to the other end of I think it's end of lockdown six on Friday. Um, we've now got a, a very different business to the one we had, and probably one we prefer. We've got a, you know, online presence, which is, I would, you know, I've never compared it to anything else, but I'd say it'd be second to none. Um, we've got a whole bunch of products we've, re- you know, come up with and released, like a cascara soda, a cascara negroni, a fresh iced coffee product, etc. We've got a whole bunch of artisan makers that we um, sell for and trust us to sell for. Um, even some of the ones you can't get, like uh, Tom Seraf and the Hamas guy, um, and and we've got our traditional wholesale business, you know. So it was quite the pivot, uh, and it was continual pivot. And I always say that uh, you probably don't have any Rocky fans out there, but um, the R- Rocky Rocky One was still my favourite movie ever. And um, maybe not Rocky 5, but Rocky 1. And when when the slice to lines in round 12 and he goes down and and Apollo Creed thinks it's all over and then he gets up again and Apollo Creed, the look on his face where he thinks, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And then Rocky wins at round 12. That's what it felt like every day for 18 months. It felt like round 12 of Rocky 1. <laughs> of Rocky one. Yeah. Thank God we're opening.
0: That is extraordinary coffee has underpinned everything you've done in your incredible career what is it that you love about what you do
1: um well you know i sort of you know if if it was about just making cash right i sort of wish i was interested in tech or fintech or something because you know those guys are working at a garage one day and then they're in the papers at 39 billion dollars the next day so it's not about making money because um, I would have moved, right? Um, I just love, I love, I'm a very sensual guy. I just love food and beverage and I love the makers. I love everything about it, you know. So whenever, all our all our family holidays are always about restaurants. Uh, um, so, you know, I remember the most beautiful experience we had in, Maybe some would say it's cliche, but it's it, it's just the truth, you know. Um, Renee Rizzebi, Noma, whenever he comes to Australia, he comes to Sydney, and um, I tried to get a booking there at Noma before I moved for five of us. And, but the three, three, three of us were kids, you know, like I think we were 12, 10 and 8 or something, and I couldn't get a booking. So I hate pulling favours, but so then I rang him. I said, look, we're going to be in your hood any chance for a table. Of course, no problem. Of course, we'll sort it out. And we rocked up to Noma, and um, you know, we're standing outside the Noma sign, and um, and taking a photo. And then Renee opens the door and welcomes welcomes the family to Noma, and all the service staff and all the chef are in a row, um, you know, welcoming us in. And my kids thought I was like a king or something. They're like, "Oh, you're like a king! You're like a king!" I'm like, "Yeah, man, I'm like a king." And and then Renee came out each course and. Each course, he would describe what he was going to do next and how he was going to do it to my children uh, who were, you know, kids, proper kids, like 12, 10, and 8. And then after the, you know, three-hour lunch, we went back a house and we played fizzball table soccer with him, you know, in the kitchen. And then we went to his fermentation room. And and it was like a five-hour journey. Until this day, that's all the kids talk about. Um, that experience, you know, that being able to provide that to people and connecting so deeply, so quickly through food in exchange of food or coffee, that's what I love and um you know I've got a you know this was a word your young listeners won't know but I've got a pretty deep Rolodex um and uh my Rolodex is all through just hosting people in my my various venues I mean I'll tell you a crazy story uh a guy called he'll probably kill me for telling you this but a guy called Sahim Al Thani who's one of the uh kids uh i think he called them princess one of the princes of the royal family in qatar um he's a crazy coffee nerd and um through his concierge the hotel he was staying in he reached out to so the concierge is a guy called ronnie ronnie rang me and said he had a, a super vip who <clears throat> wanted some you know private lessons and some you know coffee tuition and uh, he he had a barista in mind, and you know he used to work for us at the time, and you know he, he specified the entire thing, right? And I said to Ronnie, "Who is this guy, mate? Like this is crazy." And he said, "Oh, I can't tell you, but you know, super VIP." I said, "Okay, cool." So we priced it up, and uh, sure enough, uh, I, I was there to greet him, and it was. And the weird thing about the booking was that it was at eleven p.m. And I was like, who the hell has a fucking you know, masterclass eleven p.m. Right? And, of course, it was Ramadan. So it was, um, you know, they, and, and, and I didn't connect any of these dots at the time. I was there and I was, you know, greeting him and he was with a, a guy called Andy who is you now in hindsight his head of security. But at the time I, I thought they were a couple or they were best friends or I had no idea what was going on. Um, and then I worked out who he was. Anyway, long story short, um, he came to my wedding. You know, we became really good friends um, and all, all through coffee. Um, I mean, and like I said, the chili peppers, I mean, you tell me any other profession that gives you that kind of access to experiences, um, and, uh, and tables, you know, so what do I like most about my job, those
0: connections. Well, Salvatore, I know you've got so many more stories and perhaps we'll have to catch up again, but we've absolutely loved having you on the luminaries on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a few of them. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. This is the Deep in the Weeds Podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Lock for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe. And be well.